Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to start uh, inching or edging into the holidays and also into uh, Ireland and things Irish and, and the uh, our trip to Galway. Uh, let's start with edging into the holidays. Okay. Our good friends at Spork and Spork Pit have planned a number of exciting things, starting uh, with Thanksgiving and, and moving through. Um, we talked with uh, Chris Rangiatis, chef owner, and also with um, Sean Enright, who is um, he's he's Mister Cocktail, <laughs> and he's also manager he's, of sport. He, yeah, he's actually the general manager. He's a general manager. He, he pretends he pretends he's not, and he just thinks he just acts like he's a wine geek and a cocktail maven. Yeah, but he's yeah. really a much more important guy than yeah. that. I've known. Do you know how long I've known him for? Well, I, I also discovered we have something else in common. Turns yeah, out, turns out our, birth, our birthday is, a, is the, same the same day, day. <laughs> and I don't know that he knows that. And I, only, I think only just found I think that out I myself. told him last year. You did, okay. Yeah, well, I anyway, let's let's, let's uh, listen. Let's listen to what Chris and Sean and gang have available to all you guys who are lucky enough to live in Pittsburgh. Yeah, some of our, our best friends and, and favorite restaurateurs and what what you call yourself, Sean, a young, what, Sean Enright? Yeah, uh, I don't know, uh, I bar, bartender. Yeah, uh, well, you're the manager author. of Spork. We're, we're talking today manager about the, the exciting developments approaching uh, well, in fall and approaching the holiday season, uh, especially some really interesting stuff about Thanksgiving. And we're going to be talking to um, chef owner Christian Frangiatis and uh, the manager of Spork, uh, Sean Enright. And we're going to talk about, let's start with Spork. Who wants to start running through the special things that are happening at Spork this fall? Sure, I can deal with that. Um, so basically... We- as we transition in the fall, we have a lot of menu changes. Um, we have a big garden that, you know, yields us a lot of a lot of product during the summer. But now, as we're going in the fall, we're going into a lot of pickled vegetables. We have things like um, fermented kimchi, fermented pickles, fermented hot sauce, and we're kind of waiting for the root vegetables and the greens in the greenhouse to to sort of finish up so we can implement them through the winter. You know, I want to steal um, your garden. You know that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we we have uh, our ace gardener Jonathan Corey, who's sort of in charge of that program. We have a you know a full charcuterie menu as well that's really kind of ramped up for the winter as well. Yeah, which is um, one of your specialties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we're running a pizza happy hour that's based off of Neapolitan style pizza. So it's charred with ninety seconds tender crust. Um, but the difference is is that we do a long fermented dough. And it's starter augmented, so it has more of a developed yeast flavor than it's customary, customary in Neapolitan yeah, I pizza. like that. I really like that a lot. That long ferment makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. yeah. You, you have that special oven. And I, ca- I always wanted to ask you, why in the world would Sweden make the best pizza oven? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a good question, but it's the only oven that I'm aware of that that is electric that's capable of reaching 900 degrees, which is what... 
you know, a typical Neapolitan-style pizza would be cooked in, but it, that would be in a wood-burning oven. Mm-hmm. So we get all of the characteristics of a Neapolitan-style pizza, but the one thing that kind of differentiates us is we do do the long ferment in the highly developed yeast-flavored dough. So what we've done is every Monday through Friday, we essentially open up a pizzeria at the bar for two hours. Yeah, I and, love your um, pizza. I do love it. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, other things that we're doing at Spork is that, you know, we have, obviously, for the for the fall, we have lots of braises, beef cheeks, pork belly. Um, the crab souffle is making a return. Oh, um, yeah, I didn't know it had gone have, away. I always eat that. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it's kind of, we, we look at it as kind of seasonal. We also have a lot of, you know, we've taken a direction towards grain pastas, so we have some homemade buckwheat pastas, some homemade chestnut pastas, as well as still a decent amount of stuff from, from Spork Pit from our sister barbecue restaurant where we utilize the smoked brisket for ravioli. We have smoked turkey from Ole Poblano. We're doing ember roasted onions and squash purees that we do kind of in the embers of the of the barbecue pit, and we're using those to kind of create hearty fall salad. So that's tell, sort of a rundown of what we're doing at Spork. Tell us about the gift cards because... You know, millennials are opting for experiences rather than objects. So tell us about your gift card promotion. Well, we're doing uh, we're doing two promotions. Uh, one is going to run from uh, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. We're going to do, for every $100 you spend at Spork, you'll get a $25 gift card. And then uh, we wanted to keep the promotion going and promote, uh, get, some, get some heads into uh, Spork Pit as well. So we're going to do a... Uh, from, I think, I believe it's December 12th to the 24th, we'll be running a gift card promotion where for every $100 you spend at Spork, you will get a $10 gift card to the Spork Pit. That sounds good. <laughs> and how yeah, about, so what, it, you what, know, this is something that... Everybody wins. Yeah, if, if, if we were doing Thanksgiving dinner, I'd jump on this next thing. You're, you're, uh, you have your free Thanksgiving turkey dinner but you also are selling smoked turkeys. That's, I guess, through Spork Pit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing them through Spork Pit, and they're actually available um, right on the website. You can pre-order your turkey. Um, what we're using is uh, we're doing we're smoking 13-pound fresh turkeys. They're Amish, <laughs> or at least they're from an Amish farm. Yeah. And that comes with uh, one quart of foie gras uh, gravy and one quart of stuffing that's um, kind of augmented with um, dried cranberries and pepitas. So you can actually order the turkey now, and you can pick it up chilled on Wednesday and ready to reheat, or you can get it hot on Thanksgiving Day and just pick it up and bring it right to the house. That's too good to be true. <laughs> and, and tell us um, about you having pre-Thanksgiving turkey dinners at Spork, right? Yes, yeah, we're gonna do, we're gonna do that the week of, and we'll and we'll run some sort of a um, you know we're gonna we're gonna run like a Thanksgiving theme type of type of uh, Dinner special, and that will include, you know, again the smoked turkeys, the foie gras gravy, the um, the the stuffing, and then all the you know the dressings that would be typical of Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, now a question. Yeah, a question for our barman and Sean and right. Uh, tell us about your cider flights, uh, your new Corvin, and, uh, and then you could move on to also um, your. At Spork Pit, the Hog Whiskey Cider Happy Hour. All right. Um, so our sorry, our current uh, wine director, Olivia Lindstrom, is uh, sort of put together a couple programs for the fall. Uh, during the during the summer, we did a rosé flight, and she wanted to do 
something more fall flavored, so she decided to put on a cider flight through the through the fall into the winter. Um, basically, she's taking uh, ciders from many different regions. Right now, we have uh, two from New York, uh, one from Spain, and one from Normandy, France. Oh, really? And That's are, interesting. Yeah, uh, it's actually from uh, Mont Saint Michel, which is a, a beautiful little uh, town in uh, Normandy. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, so we have the the four flights, uh, the four wines are two ounce pours each, twelve dollars for that flight, and you get to try a little bit of something from uh, different regions of the world. We do have one coming in from uh, Estonia in the next couple of weeks as well. Estonia. <laughs> Estonia. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't know about so, that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, that should be coming in in the next week or so. On top of that, she's also done a program where uh, we've got a Corvin, which is a single uh, apparatus that can actually it puts argon back into wine and keeps wine fresher longer. So with that system, we've been able to bring in some really high-end wines and pour them by the glass, uh, it, which has been taken off like wildfire. We've got we've done some Chateau de Paz. We've got done some. Big name Super Tuscans, uh, a lot of California and Napa Cabernets. That's been a huge hit here as well. Uh, do you have any special cocktails developed for Thanksgiving and fall? Yeah, you know, well, we have we, we do our cocktail list pretty much seasonally. Um, right now, we have a cocktail on our menu that is definitely going to just carry itself right to the winter. Um, it is uh, called the Wana Ziga Ziga, and it is a whiskey and pumpkin shrub oh, wow. uh, and, which is quite delicious um that's that's probably the biggest hit it comes in this beautiful metallic shiny uh pumpkin and we have uh, a lot of our guests actually purchase the pumpkin afterwards because it's so beautiful um so that's probably the biggest fall uh, cocktail we have we also do have a cobra kai thai which is a play on a mai thai where i use pisco and uh, cachaca instead of rum, and then we do a sort of a fall, I call it Sean's Mix number one. Mm. It's supposed to, uh, it's got like blackstrap rum and uh, snap liqueur, a lot of uh, those uh, all-spice dram, a lot of those spicy, um, like baking spice liqueurs uh, floated on top as well, which has been a big hit too. Now, you, we missed your, um, your first pig roast at Spork Pit. I mean, I, I am... A, 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 a crazy nutcase over pig roasts. I love them. Uh, in fact, we, Peter and I have actually made them several times, <laughs> digging the pits and the whole thing. Uh, and one, and above ground, but mainly we like to dig pits. You tied it in. You're going to have, first of all, you're going to, even though the first one's gone by, you're going to have additional pig roasts, right? Right. So we did the first one for um, a Halloween party. So we just, we just did it last, last Saturday night. And it went really well. It was that we basically got um, heritage hogs from Serenity Hill and uh, and roasted it. And we served it with two sides and two adult beverages. We had a DJ, and and uh, it just was a lot of fun. And we, you know, it, it was kind of so successful that we think that we're going to do it now every third Saturday of each month and do the same thing. Do it as a ticketed event, include two sides, two beverages. And but do you put the whole pig out so people can see it? Well, no, we, you know, we roasted the whole pig, and then that it took us about eighteen hours, and uh, and then we pick, and then we pick it all. You know, we pull it all. Uh-huh. So the only thing is, is the, the 
when you pull it, it needs to come down in temperature a little bit. So, you know, it comes out of the out of the pit at about 200 degrees, and then we need to get it down to about 145 to start pulling it. Uh-huh. Um, so we so we pre-pull like an you know an hour before everybody gets there. And now but, you, um, you you combined the first pig roast with the Halloween party. I I just couldn't resist getting in there. Tell us about who won first prize in the costume department. Oh yeah, that was uh that was spinach and Popeye. So <laughs> <laughs> a guy came dressed up like a can of spinach, and then he dressed his uh, English bulldog as a. Um, as Popeye. <laughs> so, so they won first prize, which incidentally was a $75 sport fit gift card. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, That's yeah. pretty good. Well, listen. So um, it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, you, you guys have fun, and I would say that probably you'll come up with even more ideas between now and, um, and when we're moving into the new year. One last thing uh, is your um, website. Yeah, so our, our website's up and going. We have an online store on there so everything can be purchased either the Thanksgiving turkeys or next day pickup um, you can purchase whole briskets you can purchase different quantities of, of meats and you can go right to the website um, pay for everything and just come the next day and pick it and pick it up and we'll have it all set aside hot and ready for you back sealed and set to go so we have that we also have a happy hour that we're doing at, at Sport Fit as well where we're featuring spiced hot or bourbon spiced hot cider drinks and we're doing that from five o'clock to seven out on the deck. We have uh, we have fire pits and we have propane warmers, and we also have indoor seating as well. Well, it's an exciting place to be, and <laughs> and so listeners keep checking the website because I assure you there will always be new new features, <laughs> new ideas coming forth out of Spork and Spork Pit. And hold on, and spell out the URL, Sean. What's that? Spell out the URL. The, web, the website. Oh, I'm sorry. www.sportpit.com. With, with two T's? S-P-O-R-K-P-I-T. Yes. Dot com. Right. All right, you two. Have a good rest of the day. And, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Happy Halloween. There's a song, an old, probably Irish song, that goes something like, if you ever go across the sea to Ireland, I'm not going to sing it. You'll Thank be, you. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be grateful for. It, it, it turns out that uh, there was a big event organized by some good friends of ours happening in Galway, Ireland. So they said, you must come. And, of course, we decided that we must go since we've been before yeah. and we know what fun it can be. So yeah. the event is called Food on the Edge, and we're starting out with some of the personalities that we met while the conference was going on, and uh, well, actually, we we were a little out of um, chronological order because it was after the conference concluded that we made a side trip um, to the Connemara Smokehouse, which I mean I have this weakness for smoked fish. And believe me, when, when you're in Ireland, everything is lightly smoked, it's um, fresh, it's from pristine waters, and, and we got to talk to a very articulate, the scion of, of the Connemara Smokehouse, Graham Roberts, about his family business. How, how long do you want me for, says Graham Roberts? Of, of-
Connemara Smokehouse. This is not quite as far west as you can go in Ireland, but it feels like the end of the road when you get here <laughs> with relief because there are lots of corners and there are cars coming the other way. It's quite an exciting adventure, but well worth the visit to a, an iconic institution that, that, that has certain principles that it's had since, since, it's, since it's been founded. Graham, explain to our listeners why you, why you don't make more than you do and why the ingredients are so important to you. Um, I suppose the, the thinking behind what we do here, the, and, and I, with the knowledge that we have, my father was a fisherman before starting the smokehouse here. So there's a huge wealth of knowledge behind what we do. And that's something that's very, very important. And it, it's easy for me to forget that sometimes. Um, but by having that background knowledge, it gives us the ability to, I suppose, recognize good quality fish and also to respect what to do with it. Um, and in terms of, you know, why we don't want to do more than we do, um, we're very mindful that to produce the type of quality product that we do, we need to start with top quality raw materials. And to do that, you know, if, if we were to produce more than we currently produce, we would somehow have to compromise our standards a little bit, and we're not prepared to do that. So what you're saying, to put it in slightly different words, the, the, the product that you start with, and you can run through what those are for me quicker than I can, the, pro the problem is a limitation of the supply that you can get in, o in order to be able to maintain the quality that you want. Um, yes, I suppose it's, it's a limitation in the supply, but I suppose as well as that, it's also the suppliers that we work with. So a lot of the fishermen that I work with, for example, would be the sons of the fishermen that my father worked with. Um, so that gives a great understanding from generation to generation as to what quality fish we're looking for. And, you know, so we don't want to just go out and just randomly select suppliers all over the place. Um, the different fish that we would use, things like tuna, mackerel, herrings, salmon. The salmon that we use, we use both wild and organic salmon. Uh, the tuna that we use, we source from two brothers uh, that fish together, and they would have worked with my dad for a long time. The wild salmon, as I said, a lot of the, the salmon that we get are caught by sons of the fishermen that my dad would have worked with. Uh, my dad actually has gone back to sea now. He does a little bit of fishing, not a whole lot. He does more teaching than fishing, to be honest. Um, but he does a little bit of fishing now and catches a few mackerel. Um, and so, yeah, I, I suppose the, one of the big deciding factors in terms of quantities that we use are uh, not even necessarily the availability of the fish, but the availability of the suppliers that we want to work with as well. Do you know what I mean? Now, explain, if you would, the distinction between organic and wild, what, what each one of those means to you? Well, I suppose wild is self-explanatory in the sense that it's born in the wild, swims in the wild, fished in the wild. Uh, the wild salmon that we use are fished for two months each year. That's the commercial fishing season, uh, June and July. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's uh, when I say two, it's actually two months and about a week. There's about a week of May as well. Um, and... They're fished in a very traditional method called draft net fishing. And this is where three or four fishermen rest on the shore. They watch for the fish to jump. When they see that happen, they know the fish are there. One fisherman stays on the edge of the shore holding the end of the net. The others row out in a small traditional boat called a curragh, paying the net out as they go. 
trying to get the net around the fish, back to the shore, hand haul the net in. So it's a very, very labor-intensive way of fishing. They don't always catch fish. So, I mean, they could return to the shore, pull the net in, and find that they only have one fish, no fish, maybe ten fish. Um, the other thing that's very important as well from a sustainability point of view, all of the wild salmon that we use have to have what's called a carcass tag, which the fishermen put into the mouth of the fish and out through the gill and they clip that shut. Each tag has an individual serial number and those tags are given to the fisheries, given to the fishermen by the fisheries board. We cannot buy the wild salmon here without those tags and those tags are allocated um, and a quota is adhered to as well for each region where there's fishing goes on. So that's the wild salmon. Okay, so we must buy them during the season, clean them, freeze them, smoke them as we need them. Not an exact science, but we try to have enough to do us at least until Christmas, which obviously is a very busy time of year. Um, hopefully you have some to do you into the new, into the, into the new year as well. Doesn't always work, but that's, that's the way it goes. Now the, the organic then, the organic is farmed but using organic methods. That's correct, yes. So the organic salmon, um, I suppose it creates a bit of confusion sometimes when, when people say, you know, people think of organic uh, and they kind of, what is it? So it's something that actually when we run tours of the smokehouse here as well, we always explain to people the difference between the wild and the organic. So the organic are a farmed fish. They're organically farmed. So they are kept in enclosures, okay? Uh, I suppose where the differences are between your organic salmon and your, your standard farm salmon, if you like, the organic salmon that we use um, are kept in a very, they're a very exposed area. So what this means is a huge throughput of water. Um, it means sometimes by being in such an exposed area as well, it can be very difficult to get fish because if there's bad weather, um, the guys can't get out to the pens to, to harvest the fish. But anyway, by being in these exposed areas, there's a huge throughput of water. This and very strong tidal currents as well. Now what this means is the fish are very much compelled to swim against the tides and against the currents. Um, and by, by this, it gives them much more exercise. So it gives them a much leaner, stronger flesh, lower fat content than your traditional farm salmon. Um, and they're stocked at a low density as well. So there's two fish per ton of water. So a lot of space to swim freely. Again, this means that they can be more exercised, better quality flesh. Um, and, you know, so all of these contribute into that. What they eat, uh, they are fed, uh, but they're fed a natural diet consisting of herring, mackerel, and krill. And um, the key, I think, with the organic salmon is they're allowed to grow naturally. So in other words, they will take a similar length of time to get to a marketable size as the wild salmon will. Um, and we've, we find the organic salmon very, very popular. Um, it's something that a lot of our customers really enjoy. And, you know, you might think that because it's technically, I suppose, it's a farmed product, you might think it's available all of the time. Now, as such, that may be true, but to get the sort of quality fish that we're looking for, there are certain suppliers that we work with that have the quality of organic salmon that we are looking for. And so it isn't always available. And so we have to be mindful of that as well. And I would rather say to somebody, we don't have a product in stock than have a product that isn't the quality that it should be. So you actually freeze the, the fish. Do you do that um, when you bring them back to this your business site? Yes. So with, with any of the wild fish, obviously they're seasonal. So things like the, the salmon, for example, is the, the season being June, July. 
So what we must try to do is to get enough during that time, clean them, freeze them, smoke them as we need them, kind of smoke them to order. It would be the same thing with mackerel, with herrings, uh, tuna, the tuna that we use, their line caught Irish tuna. The season for them, it can be, the season for them can be quite long. It could be anything from June right through to September, even October sometimes, depending on water temperature, can make a difference how deep they swim and how far off the coast they swim. But the same principle, we would get the tuna during the season, clean them, freeze them, smoke them as we need them. Same thing with the mackerel. We tend, with the mackerel, we tend to, um, source them in the colder months. And that way you get bigger fish with a better oil content for smoking. Um, so any time from probably about November through till, we would generally say that St. Patrick's Day is the cutoff point for sourcing mackerel for smoking. Of course, you can get mackerel in the summer as well. Um, excellent for barbecuing and grilling, but not as good for smoking. So the mackerel, as I said, we would get them during the, during the season, clean them, freeze them, smoke them as we need them also. And the same thing with the herrings. I was fascinated when you said that um, the, vari the variations uh, are all over the board in terms of the fat content and the moisture and so forth, so that um, you need to adapt your smoking um, techniques to that particular quality of the fish, the characteristics of the fish. And you do this by looking at it. This This comes with a lot of experience, because most people wouldn't be able to step in and identify the kinds of adaptations in the processing that were needed because of the composition of the fish. No, that's that's very true, and it's something, again, it's easy for me for, to forget sometimes. It's that wealth of knowledge and experience behind what we do. Um, and so every day can be a little bit different. You know, even sometimes if you have fish that are the same, the same size, the same oil content, um, you know, you may need to smoke them slightly differently because of weather conditions. But particularly with any of the wild fish, you'll find, you know, you may find with the wild salmon, depending on what it's had in its diet, uh, it may have a slightly different oil content. That will affect how it takes up salt. It will affect how it takes up smoke. It will affect how it dries during the smoking. So there's all of these different factors. And then on top of that, uh, when you're actually smoking the fish, you have a situation where, because of the age and simplicity of the kiln that we use, uh, if it's very windy, the smoke is pulled up the chimney more quickly. So it takes longer to get the same smokiness than on a cam day when the smoke is thick. Similarly, if it's raining, which of course is highly unusual in Ireland, <laughs> um, it takes longer to dry the fish than on a hot sunny day. So although every single day is a little bit different, the end result is the same. And that's just purely through experience that I have learned that my father has taught me by the look and the feel of the fish when they're ready. And I'm very, very happy and very proud to be able to say as well, um, I have four children, two boys, two girls. Uh, the oldest girl is 17. I have a 16-year-old son, 14-year-old son, and a 13-year-old daughter. And the two older ones now, uh, for, the, for a couple of years now, have, they can tell when the fish are ready in the smoker through experience that they've learned from me, that I've learned from my father. And so it's lovely to see that knowledge passed on. You know, I could teach anybody to do what I do to a basic level. But to learn to that intricacy and that detail and that quality that we strive for, the only way to learn that is with time. Talking, touching, looking. And that's really what it's all about. Now, we did, uh, we sampled some of your product, um, and each sample was a, a bit different. Um, explain the processes that we sampled. So the, the first thing that you tried, I think, was the organic smoked salmon. 
Uh, I suppose that's, if you want to call it the flagship or the signature product, it's, it's what people tend to recognize straight away. You know, you're a smokehouse, you do smoked salmon. So that is traditional smoked salmon, cold smoked at about 30 degrees centigrade. Um, and so it would be traditionally dry salted. This involves putting dry salt onto the fish, which will rest there for about 8 to 10 hours. That time in salt is decided by me through experience, again, that I have learned that my dad has taught me as well. And when they've had enough time in salt, that salt is washed away using fresh water, and the fish are allowed to rest then overnight in the fridge to dry off before smoking. The dry salting is very, very important because it draws moisture out of the fish. A really good way to kind of visualize it. Uh, sometimes people are sort of looking there. They're, they're, they hear you saying, yeah, you put salt on the fish, but a really good way to visualize it. You know when you spill red wine on a carpet and you put salt onto it, and through osmosis, the wine soaks up into the salt. It's the same kind of principle, if you like. You put dry salt onto the fish, and it draws moisture out, and that's what you're looking to, to do. So after the salt has been washed away, fish rest in the fridge overnight before smoking, um, we then smoke using beech wood, and we find that this complements the flavor of the fish the best. Um, I think when we started off originally, we tried using oak. It, it's looked upon as the traditional fish for smoking, but we found oak gives a slightly bitter aftertaste, whereas the beech just complements the flavor really, really well. It gives a nice smoky flavor without overpowering. Um, so you're looking at about 8 to 10 hours for smoking, followed by 8 to 10 hours for drying, all done in the kiln. So about 16 to 20 hours in ideal conditions. As I said earlier, if it's very windy, very wet, it could take double that time to achieve the same end result. So you're doing different things, different days to get the same end result, and that's your traditional smoked salmon, okay? Um, we also then, you tried the Gravitlax, which is a marinated salmon. And that's originally a Scandinavian dish, Grav being a grave, Lax being salmon. It would be marinated with salt, sugar, and dill and buried in the ground. Um, you'd be glad to know we don't bury it in the ground. Um, and we've tweaked the recipe slightly to make it our own. Uh, we marinate it with salt, sugar, dill, and Irish whiskey. And a bit of whiskey for the chef, obviously, for quality control is, is very important. Um, and so that's the Gravit Lax. It's not smoked. So I mix together those ingredients and then rub it into the fish and let that marinate for about three to four days. And then it's sliced and packed and ready to go. Uh, we also do two other products with the salmon. Um, we do a roast and a honey roast smoked salmon. So the, the roast is hot smoked. Um, it's smoked at about 100 degrees centigrade, as opposed to your traditional smoked salmon, which is done at about 30 degrees. So at 100 degrees, the fish becomes cooked. So it's a slow cooking, smoking process. The honey roast, then, uh, is marinated in honey before smoking, and then I hot smoke it, and during the hot smoking, I brush it with honey several times during the hot smoking, so you get the cooked texture, smoky taste, sweetness from the honey. And it's a beautiful product. It actually won first prize for our best new seafood product in Ireland in 2003. Um, and we were, we were the first people in Ireland to start producing something like that, and it's proven very, very popular. So those are the four products that we make from salmon. Then you also tried our peppered smoked mackerel. Uh, it's a beautiful product. It's, it's actually, um, whilst people love our smoked salmon, the smoked mackerel sometimes amazes them because they're so used to some of the poor quality smoked mackerel that you get in shops sometimes that they cannot believe that mackerel can make such a good product. Um, and so we do a plain and a peppered smoked mackerel. So again, they would be traditionally salted, and then they're hot smoked, so they're a cooked texture. Um, and I suppose some of the key factors 
why our mackerel is as good as it is. It's down to that fish selection, you know. Uh, first of all, it's working with fishermen that know the quality that we're looking for. Even at that, you can still have, you know, some fish that slip through um, that maybe are not exactly the quality that we want them to be. It can happen. And this is another reason for me why it's so, so important to remain hands-on with the fish. I personally, I fillet the fish myself. Um, so this means it gives me the opportunity to check every fish that's passing through my smokehouse. Um, it's, it's what I love doing. It's what I'm good at. Um, I do have the business to run as well, but my priority and my passion is with the fish, hands-on. Um, so that's the mackerel we do, as I said, a plain and a peppered smoked mackerel. Um, we also do a stunning smoked tuna. It would be one of my favorite products. It's a line called Irish tuna. My father and myself started the line fishing for tuna here in Ireland back in 1991. Uh, I was only 16 at the time. And we developed that fishing as an environmentally friendly way of, of catching tuna. And we developed the smoking from there. And it's an absolutely stunning product. It really, really is. And they would be albacore tuna. And we also then do traditional kippers, which are herrings. So they're split open down the back traditionally, opened out, cold smoked, and then you just cook them however you prefer. Let it be grill them with butter or shallow fry them, um, or cook them in the oven. And so you have a range of different products there. But I suppose the, the most important thing is quality. That's what the whole business is based on, is happy customers, um, top quality products, and you get people just coming back time and time again, and, and that's what it's about. Well, you have me sold, but how do I get some? Um, the, the best way to get some, uh, as I say, look, you can come here to the smokehouse. That's always a good option. We, we love seeing people come and visit the smokehouse. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's small, it's simple. You know, we've got a factory shop here, and people arrive into our, into our hallway and kind of say, do you have a shop? But the answer is yes, we're standing in it. Um, and uh, so that's one option. People can come here to the smokehouse. Uh, another option is people can order online. Now, unfortunately, to the States, we don't send to the States. So, as we say to most of our American customers, best thing is to come here. You can take it back with you as hand luggage. Um, we actually have one guy who comes over twice a year on a golfing holiday. And when he comes over here, he ends up buying about 1,500 euros worth of smoked salmon uh, and brings it back. And he actually gives most of it away uh, to friends and family and stuff like that. But he just loves it so much. Um, and he's so enthusiastic and passionate about our product uh, that he loves bringing it to, to his friends and family. Um, and uh, apart from that, that's kind of the only... Uh, sorry, yeah, the website. So the website is a really nice, simple one. It's smokehouse.ie. So really simple website. Um, easy, to, easy to remember. Uh, we don't sell it in a whole lot of shops and things like that. We sell it in a few shops locally, just as a local product. Again... I suppose by selling it in shops locally, uh, people working in those shops know that it's a local product and they can, they can speak about it a little bit. And I suppose it's something that's very important for us as well. When people come here, we're on hand to explain what our products are, why they are, and, and why they cost what they cost. Because, I mean, if you come and you look at, say, a 200-gram pack of wild smoked salmon, and you say, right, that's 32 euro, that's a lot of money. Um, and if you just saw that in a shop, you might say, well, God, I, I don't know if it's good, if it's bad, uh, should I pay that much for it? Whereas if somebody comes here and we're on hand to explain to them everything that goes into that product, how it comes about, how you have four fishermen sitting on the edge of the shore, uh, you know, possibly all day long with no fish at the end of the day, possibly all week long with no fish at the end of the day. 
Um, uh, and, you know, you explain all of that. You explain all of the work that goes into hand filleting those fish, traditionally salting them, how when you start off with 10 kilos of whole fish, you end up with about 3.5 to 4 kilos finished product. And you take them through all of that and explain all of the traditional methods that you use. It doesn't make the product any cheaper but it gives people insight into, into why it is what it is. And what we find, most of our customers, we have such a, a diversity of customers, um, but what we find is that people that are coming here, they want to know what they're buying, where it's come from, how it's produced, and who has produced it. And one of the things that's very, very important for me is value for money. And for me, value for money doesn't mean cheap, it doesn't mean expensive, but it must be good value for money. And, and so much of the time, everybody works very, very hard for the money they've got. And when you spend it, you deserve to get what you pay for. Um, and so much of the time, sometimes you get something that's so-so, and it shouldn't be very much money, and it isn't. Sometimes you get something that's expensive, and it's excellent, and that's arguably okay too. But a lot of the time, you get something that's so-so, and it's expensive, and that's not good value for money. Um, and I suppose the, the ethos for me behind what we do, we will never, ever be wealthy doing what we do here. We're here to make a living, not a killing. And what I mean by that, there are so many businesses that look at what they're doing and they say, right, we need 50 euro, but we would like 100, and they charge 100. Now, to me, that's wrong. Now, I don't have any training in business or anything like that, but I just feel you should charge what you need, not what you want. And if you can do that, and give somebody really good quality products that you put your heart and soul and passion into, um, it's a recipe for success. I, I'm sold, Kevin. And Anne's waving her hand. I, I need to wave back to her because the, the, the other end of our road for today is Galway and it's two, two hours away. <laughs> but, but you can have one last question. Oh, she, 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 just, she was just waving. She doesn't need one last question. It's a, it's a wonderful story, Graham. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And uh, thank, thank you for being here, doing what you do with some good old-fashioned values right behind it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, call back again. And before we go on, we, we, better, we better put in a little message here, so don't go away, because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and uh, slight, cha slight, uh, very slight change of change of subject coming along. One of the things that we found, everyone told us when we were in Galway, and which we really knew anyway, is that the core of a tremendous upsurge in the quality of the restaurant food business in Ireland is ba is based on product, extraordinarily fine products. And we caught up with a couple of people in the trade show at Food on the Edge rep representing cheese based on the wonderful pasture that's available for for uh, cows in Ireland. Year-round, you know. And a surprising entry in the seafood steaks, albacore tuna. Yeah. 
Yes, and listeners, we're talking to P.J. Ryan, and we've just sampled his wonderful cheese. Um, the company is Castle Blue, and it's Irish farmhouse cheeses. Now, and we're talking that the P.J. is actually the cheese maker, and um, they do a very famous, the Castle Blue, um, house milk cheese, plus they do a goat cheese, which I just sampled, called, I mean, sheep cheese, um, a crozier blue, and it's excellent, too. Um, tell us this, how long have you been doing this? Well, we, we've been in business since 1982, and we're based in Cashel County, Tipperary. Where is that in relation to, to Galway? Uh, well, Galway, uh, it's about two hours down the motorway, we're in Munster, Ireland, so you're Galway's conduct and we're in Munster. Why is it that Irish cheeses, Irish dairy products, Irish butter, why is it so good? Well, I, I think it's all down to the climate in Ireland, and our, all our animals are grass-fed, they're outside, they're in their natural environment, and it just it make a really, really nice milk, and when you have really, really good milk, it's easy to make a good product with it. Right. It's the interesting thing is, you get milk from fresh grass grey cows 365 days a year, correct? Well, maybe for a brief period in the winter time they might be housed, but it's, it's a very brief period, but yes, it, it would be grass-based cows and grass-based milk, yes. Yes. How did you get into this business? Was, was there a family business? No, I'm actually, I, I live five minutes up the road and farming was always a passion of mine and I worked on the farm at Cashel Blue and when the cheese business started to pick up a bit, they asked me would I be interested in going in and making cheese and I said, yeah, why not? You're too much. I, I love doing interviews with the Irish chefs and producers, artists and producers, because the, the stories are always so good. You're the natural talent for that. I guess it's genetic. Yeah, well, the, in Ireland we say we have the gift of the gap, so we're, we're naturally good at talking, and we, we, we like meeting people, and we like producing good products, and we like uh, selling them all over the world. Well, thank you very much for taking time. You're busy chair here. Before we close, tell, tell our listeners about some of the prizes you've won, because Cashel Blue is at the top of Irish cheese and world-class cheese. Yeah, it's, 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 at this stage, it's probably a world-famous cheese. We export our cheese to America, of course, uh, France, Canada, Australia, England, and we do a lot of, um, and our, obviously our cheese is sold in Ireland as well. Yeah, we've won awards all over the world. Uh, we won World's Best Cheese. Uh, we won an award last week in Ireland called the Blast Heron Awards, and we recently launched a new cheese. It's an organic cheese, and it won a big award in Dublin as well. So... The awards keep coming, which is uh, it's a credit, I suppose, to the team at Castle Blue Cheese, and it's just really, really good. It's really, really good. At the Food on the Edge conference, we would find a man called John Shine, who deals with tuna, and we're in Ireland, and tuna and Ireland don't necessarily compute. John, explain that to us, would you? Well, the amount of people that wouldn't be aware that Irish fishermen actually catch over 2,500 tonne of one particular species of tuna called albacore tuna. The, the tuna actually pass through our waters 
on their way back to the Sargasso Sea and they do a two year lap of the North Atlantic. So actually by the time the tuna get into Irish waters, they've already been in the Bay of Biscay, they've been off Portugal, so they've had their anchovies, their pilchards, their sardines, their squid. So the fish are really in great condition before they go back to the Sargasso Sea to spawn. So we're actually quite fortunate that when we pick them up off the Irish coast, they're just like a turkey for Christmas. They're in great shape. Well, actually, before we set off for Ireland, we kind of got in the mood with a special event um, by Napogue Irish Whiskey. I mean, Irish whiskey is like the biggest export, I think, from Ireland, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, actually, it's actually probably farmed salmon right now, yeah. but, uh, which, we've, which we've talked about already. Well, but Irish whiskey is pretty iconic as well. A, a, a drop of the hard stuff, as they say. <laughs> and, uh, and the hard per- stuff. The, the per- person who explained all this to us is... Uh, as loquacious as any Irishman you've ever come across. It's wonderful. And he did a presentation. And, and we were in that, that wonderful space. I had not been in Spencer Warren's space that he shares with, um, uh, with the Penn Avenue Fish. And, uh, it was, it was a fun, absolutely a fun evening and, uh, lots of great hors d'oeuvres and stuff and food from, um, um sushi from Penn Avenue and all this great. And, and, the, and the highlight of the evening was 18 year old Irish whiskey. Good. <laughs> so, so, so. Anyway, here's here's the story of whiskey in Ireland. It's a very special evening when the king or queen or whatever you call it of Irish whiskey makes its way to our home city, and we get to taste it. And we're going to be talking to Philip Duff who gave, first of all, a history of what whiskey means to Ireland. Now, Philip, I want you to keep that in under 35 minutes, <laughs> but explain how, how we got to where we are today, and then we'll talk about where we are today. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And it's my first time in Pittsburgh. Not my first time in uh, Pennsylvania, but definitely my first time in Pittsburgh, and it's been remarkable this evening. So... I'm a man who likes to get straight to the point. What is the history of whiskey in Ireland? Well, whiskey was invented in Ireland. The word was invented, and the liquid was invented. And the way to drink it and enjoy it was invented. Initially, Irish people drank beer. Then, after the Normans invaded in 1169, they got a taste for wine, because the Normans from France imported wine. But, sooner or later, Irish people began to distill and first, they made stuff called pudgeen, and then that evolved into being whiskey. Initially, it was unaged with botanicals in it. Then the botanicals went out, then it began to be stored in these wooden barrels that were very convenient for transport. And because of trade links with England, with Spain, with Portugal, it began to be stored in ex-wine barrels, especially these sherry wine barrels. And when all those things came together, you had whiskey. And it's from Ireland. It's been made famous in other countries. In Scotland. In Japan. Recently even in places like Taiwan and Australia. But whiskey is and always will be the original product from Ireland. Now, it's interesting. Part, part of the presentation that you gave us talked about 
how many mistakes the Irish made along the road to, to a whiskey future, which sounds really promising. And let, so, let, so let's do the sad part first, and then the happy part that says Irish whiskey is once again reaching the position that it always ought to have had. Oh God, I mean, when you talk about the mistakes and errors and tribulations of the Irish whiskey industry, I don't think I even listed all of them in the presentation. There's so many, from the Irish famines to the Irish War for Independence to American Prohibition to Irish distillers at their lowest moment turning down the chance to flood the market with whiskey after American Prohibition ended. It's one disaster after another, frequently self-engineered, sometimes visited by a vengeful fate upon the small Hibernian island. But, to return to the positive side, there's never been a better time to drink Irish whiskey. Uh, there have not been this many distilleries in Ireland in 150 years. There's now 45 and rising. There has not been a thirst for Irish whiskey from Russia and Kazakhstan to Melbourne and Fiji in at least a hundred years. And there has not been an expertise in distilling, an interest, an internationalism. I mean, can you believe Ireland got its first degree in distilling started only uh, four months ago. So it's great times for drinking Irish whiskey and the future can only be better. Now, a part of that recent past and future is the whiskey producer that you represent called, well, I, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but it's something like Napogue. And, and Napogue is, is involved in creating like a whole new expression of Irish whiskey. Yeah, I'm delighted actually to have been teaching the seminar here on behalf of Napogue Castle Irish Whiskey. Because it is that rarest of unicorns, and it always has been since its inception in the mid-1960s, when a Texas oilman visited Ireland and fell in love with a ruined castle dating back to 1467 in Quinn, County Clare, and restored it, bought it, restored it, and then started buying barrels of 31-year-old Irish whiskey in the 1980s, which was insane. I think he must have just wanted to give it to his friends to impress them. But that was the birth of Napoe Castle Irish Whiskey. A single malt Irish whiskey made it the oldest single malt distillery still operating in Ireland. Age statements, vintages, they still have a very limited stock of the world's oldest Irish whiskey, Napoe Castle 1951. And being able to talk about them means I have to talk about all the history, the good and the bad, but then I get to talk about the future as well, and that's the best part. Now, the castle is located in the southwest, generally, of Ireland. Put a, put a dot on the map a little bit more precisely for me. Um, if you go three-quarters of the way down a map of Ireland, and most of the way to the left, you're going to wind up in County Clare. And just above the estuary is the town of Quinn. And it's in that area that Napoe Castle is situated. So it's right there in one of the most beautiful, picturesque parts of Ireland. And I say that as a native of Dublin. It's, it's kind of hard for me to say that. But the south and the southwest are the most beautiful picture postcard perfect parts of Ireland. 
you're right on the river, you've got the Gulf Stream, you've got beautiful cliffs, you've got, believe it or not, nice beaches, you've got everything that you want there. And that's where the Napo Castle, you know, the Hill of the Kiss Castle, is located. Yeah. Now, I'm not bragging or anything like that. But the island, you, the, the river that you mentioned, must be the Shannon, exactly. which is, for, for no particular reason, the, the longest river in the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. We won't go, we won't go down that particular path. Uh, but tell us more about the whiskies now that the Napogis. What's the right word? Manufacturing, bottling. What's what's the right word we use to describe? They're part of the production of marketing. marketing. So the whiskies are made at the Bush Mills Distillery, the revered single malt distillery uh, in the north of Ireland. They have a long-term production contract. So that's why when everybody else was taking age statements off their bottles, Napo Castle decided to commit to age statements. Previously, it had always been vintages. So they put 12, 14... 16 on the bottles and what Napo Castle do is they specify exactly what the whiskey must be how it must be made how much they need they do special releases you and I just got to taste a very amazing special release that isn't even available in the state of Pennsylvania a 21 year old which I had only tasted one hour previously and what Napo Castle do is ensure that the people who are true connoisseurs of whiskey in Ireland in England, in two of the biggest export markets, France and Germany, France in particular is the largest single malt whiskey market in the world, and of course in America. The, the owning company is American, and it's very important to them that it be popular here, and it really, really is. The Poe Castle is growing strongly among people who really know their whiskey. Now, there's, there's another kind of interesting part of this. You can actually go there, and you can stay there, even if you don't drink whiskey. Just give, give our listeners how the URL that says this is how we can find out more. Well, there's NapoCastleIrishWhiskey.com, obviously, and Castle Brands, the U.S. importer. And as you were saying, you can actually go and stay in Napo Castle. So to be clear, the whiskey isn't made there, right? It's the castle that inspired the American oil man to buy barrels of whiskey and start selling it. But you can actually reserve bedrooms in the castle on airbnb.com. Isn't that amazing? So, Napogue, if you've had to learn Irish, it's not so hard, but it's definitely a tricky one, so I'm glad you reminded me to spell it. So it's K-N-A-P-P-O-G-U-E. And it's Irish whiskey with an E, that is to say W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. So, Napo Castle Irish Whiskey. It really is waiting for you. And not only that, you said it's not available in Pennsylvania yet, but it's available throughout the United States. What about around the world? Now, Napo Castle Irish Whiskey is available in Pennsylvania, but the 21-year-old that we just tried is a very, very limited one. Actually, Napo Castle Irish Whiskey is, uh, it sells quite well in Pennsylvania. It sells really well in Texas, as you might imagine, because the founder uh, of the brand is from there. It sells remarkably well in Ireland. It sells remarkably well in Irish Duty Free, because the world's best Irish whiskey shop is in Dublin, 
uh, airport terminal. It's it's really truly remarkable. But we checked today, and the two biggest export markets are France and Germany, and these are two very big important countries that have extremely high standards when it comes to single malt. They drink an enormous amount of single malt. We don't think, perhaps, of France or Germany as whiskey countries, but they really are. France, in particular, drinks more single malt than Scotland does. So for Napoleon Castle to be successful there is a real testament to how much they have sort of rejuvenated the image of true quality Irish single malt whiskey. Now, in just a short time, it used to be the very best in the world, and with Napo Castle Irish whiskey, let's say it's on its way back. Well, we're delighted you came all the way to Pittsburgh to tell us about it. We're, we're glad you're enjoying this Irish weather that we're providing for you this evening. We are listeners. We are downtown in Pittsburgh on a Monday evening. There is a baseball game that I think may not be going on because Hurricane Florence is water, watering the ground around us. But uh, we we were happy. We we're delighted. We had a most interesting evening. Philip, we thank you so much for coming to the city and for explaining it as you did so well. Thank you very much. I'll come back any time, whether there's a baseball game on or not. I can't promise I'll be able to bring any better weather, but I will love to come back to Pittsburgh. Well, I don't know whether we'll see you here, we'll see you in New York, or we'll see you across the big pond. But thank you so much for being part of on, on the menu this evening. Well, you know, the, the people have been following the strengths of Pittsburgh in, in the last week. Uh, when we arrived back in the States from Ireland, uh, the first thing we encountered, of course, was the, the hideous massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue, which is very close to our home. Um, I don't know what to add to it, except that a lot of very positives have been noticed by people outside. People in Pittsburgh already know it's a special place, but more people have come to recognize the strengths of this city and how much we care for one another. So we're very sad, but we're also very proud of our city. But to, but to all... Now until the same time, same place next week, when we, we hope you'll join us here on the menu once again. What do we say? Bye-bye.